The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kim Karen. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, James Heal meets the Conservative London mayoral candidate Susan Hall, who's ready and willing to take the fight to Sadiq Khan in next year's elections. Melanie McDonough examines the effects on children's publishing as sensitivity readers gain more and more influence. And Sam McPhail explains why football clubs could be in big trouble if fans start following superstar players rather than the clubs. First up, it's James Heal. I love a fight. I was going to say debate, but it's more of a fight, to be honest. Susan Hall is looking forward to taking on Sadiq Khan at the London Merrill Hustings. When we meet for her first interview after securing the Conservative nomination, it is five days after the Uxbridge by-election. Hall is buoyed by an unexpected Tory triumph, thanks to discontent with Khan's plans to extend the ultra-low emission zone, ULES. Out on the doorstep, she tells me, I thought the questions would be all around Boris, but they had nothing. It was all around the ULES expansion. She hopes to replicate a similar result next May. Fight is one of Hall's favoured words. She uses it 14 times in less than an hour. It explains how she went from being a 100-to-1 outsider to becoming the first woman nominated for the mayoralty by a major party. What does she make of the evening standard splash which greeted that milestone, featuring what one Tory MP called a contemptible image of Hall grinning, arms raised theatrically aloft? I thought, I won't put that picture on Tinder. Can you imagine waking up next to that? No, no. But they'll throw lots at me, and they always will. I've got very thick skin, as was evidenced in that picture. Was it sexist? Hall declines to use the word. Just get on with the job. It will throw far worse at me. She certainly has experienced worse. Her first job after leaving school was toiling away as a teenage mechanic, the only woman in a 1970s garage. In those days, they did not approve of women anywhere near cars. She later met her husband, who in an inversion of the stereotypes at the time, was a hairdresser. The couple ran a Harrow salon, which went on to employ 20 people and raise two children. They eventually separated. The Tories have unfortunately got too much of a reputation for being the Toffs. And they're not. We're normal. Tackling crime is at the heart of her blue-collar campaign. Walking along the streets, I have never felt as unsafe as I do now. The more these villains get away with things, the more emboldened they feel. Hall says that she has personal experience of these issues. Prior to entering politics, she received death threats when her business was being terrorised by some local thugs. London under Khan is absolutely in decline, she says. Just look around. We've got people marauding around with machetes. If elected, she would put 200 million into the Metropolitan Police by clamping down on City Hall staff-related costs. The manner of Cresta Dick's very public sacking by Khan last year appalled her. He is a sexist misogynist. He should never have dealt with her in that way. 
Following recent scandals, she worries the Met now lacks the authority of old. We've got to get the police so they're not forever apologising for what they're doing and so that they're more of a police force than a service. The lesson Hall took from Uxbridge is the need to curb some of the more ambitious elements of the net zero agenda. We must be mindful and we must do what we can, but things like the yearless expansion are literally going to hit the poorest in the community. Tory MPs are divided over whether current plans to ban the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2030 ought to be dropped. For Hall, the answer is clear. I think 2030, while it's a wonderful aim, is not going to happen. We haven't got charging points. There are so many issues around it. It's an admirable aim, but I don't think it will work. Rishi Sunak, though, is for now committed to the 2030 deadline. Will Hall be prepared, like Boris Johnson before her, to use the mayor's bully pulpit to defy a Tory Premier in number 10? Yes, I'd be speaking up for Londoners 100%. I am a low-tax Tory, so I'm not always very happy. But yes, if you are the Mayor of London, you speak for Londoners. End of. Even if that means fighting with the government, fighting with anybody else. I'd be like a mother. I'll fight for my London. Bloody right I will. She backed Truss over Sunat last summer because I'm a massive low-tax Tory, but says he's absolutely doing his best and I understand why taxes aren't coming down yet. I do hope they address inheritance tax. Hall is a stark contrast to some of London's more well-heeled Tories whom she defeated for the nomination. I'm very proud of the fact that I think we've done it for less than five grand. And I dread to think about the amount that the others put into it. She freely admits that blue sky thinking isn't her thing. There aren't really that many policies. I will not promise anything unless I know where the money is coming from. On national issues, she supports the Rwanda scheme, believes migration is too high and argues that Brexit is more of a success than we're making ours. Should Sunak and the Tories be more vigorous on cultural war matters? She pauses. We are a very broad church. Probably I'd be slightly more forceful in my views. Hall has particular contempt for Khan's diversity commission to review the capital statues. Don't pull down our history. I'm proud of London as it is. You want to explain things, don't touch it. For 20 years, the conventional thinking has been that only by running to the left of the National Party can a Conservative win in the capital. Labour have already done their best to depict Hall as a hard-right Tory, but she sees it as a backhanded compliment. Clearly they're concerned, otherwise they wouldn't have gone so hard. They want to annihilate me in the first place, she smiles. Well, they can dream on. I'm not going anywhere. That was James Heal. Next is Melanie McDonough. Let's hear it for the Beano, 85 years old this week. Lucky readers can get a commemorative issue featuring Charles and Camilla, Dua Lipa and Lewis Hamilton. It's also a chance for those who haven't read it for decades to register how much it has changed. Lately, the Bash Street kids welcome five classmates, Harsha, Mandy, Kadia, Madeira and Stevie Starr. There's a hijab alongside the stripy shirts and school caps, plus a scientist in a wheelchair. Fatty, the boy who ate all the pies, and Spotty, who had postules and a long tie, have been renamed Freddy and Scotty to ensure young people who have freckles, weight problems or acne are not taunted by their peers. The comic's creative director, Mike Sterling, cheerfully admits that the comic has become woke. We've never seen this as a pejorative term, he says. It's awareness and being awake to things. What would be easy to do would be to steepwalk and keep the beano the way it has always been done forever. As in, funny? 
The Beano's changes testify to the influence of Inclusive Minds, a consultancy for people who are passionate about inclusion, diversity, equality and accessibility in children's literature. The organisation encourages those it works with to sign its Everybody In Charter, which declares that everyone working with children and books must play a part in ensuring that all children can find authentic representations of themselves in books, as well as seeing those who are different from them. Its inclusion ambassadors, children and parents, advised on the Beano's makeover. The organisation, founded a decade ago by Alexandra Strick and inclusion and equality consultant Beth Cox, surfaced earlier this year as the body involved in censoring Roald Dahl's work for children. You know, the one that ended with Puffin and the Roald Dahl story company, removing the words fat and ugly. The Oompa were no longer men, but people. Miss Trunchbull's horse face disappeared. Some disobliging verses in James and the Giant Peach were rewritten, but the new ones didn't scan quite so well. In The Witches, a paragraph explaining that witches are bald beneath their wigs ends with, There are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. Indeed, it's just not what Dahl would ever have said. That exercise went well, didn't it? The agenda rolls on, with inclusive minds advising the big five publishers and a number of smaller ones on how to embed inclusivity in their writing, editing and illustration. We do not edit or rewrite texts, it insists on its website, but provide book creators with valuable insight from people with the relevant lived experience that they can take into consideration in the wider process of writing and editing. I'm not sure that the big figures in children's books quite realised how this is how the agenda works. Sir Quentin Blake, quoted on the Inclusive Minds testimonials, praising the aim to ensure all children can see themselves reflected in the stories and pictures, something he does in his own work, did not care for the Dahl rewrite, not least because he was Dahl's illustrator. He told me last week, if the work is wrong, it's wrong. If it's crude and insensitive, we need to know that. If the sensitive had their way, Dahl would never have written the twits at all. Of course, inclusive minds is only one element of the transformation of children's publishing. The drive for greater diversity and inclusion began, as you'd expect, in the United States, where public libraries helped lead the changes. In the UK, the agenda is driven by organisations like the Vital North Partnership and Seven Stories, the National Centre for Children's Books, which brings public funding into the equation. And let's not forget the Equality Act. A friend who runs a Montessori school told me that she was making sure there were enough books featuring gay dads and non-nuclear families in her school library because they're expecting an Ofsted inspection. And that's something the inspectors look out for. Ofsted's remit under the Act's public sector equality duty is to ensure that schools promote respect for protected characteristics. So if your toddler is bringing home Julian is a mermaid, or Grandad's pride, for Grandad went on the original pride parade with his black partner, or The Kindest Red, a story of hijab and friendship, where a little girl learns to celebrate her sister's hijab, that may be why. All this has changed how authors, publishers, editors and illustrators work. I spoke last year to the head of a distinguished publishing company who told me that while they do not themselves employ sensitivity readers, she finds herself changing what she commissions and how she steers her authors. In other words, the agenda is in her head. That's how censorship works best, when it's internalised. You preempt criticism. Need I say I don't have a problem with children of different ethnicities or cultures featuring in children's books? 
Some of the most vigorous children's books I've reviewed over the past few years have been from African authors. One of the best books published this year is Alan Garner's Folk Tales, featuring Indian epic as well as Celtic sagas. The problem is that as an agenda, diversity and inclusion doesn't make for good writing. It meddles with the work of our favourite old authors and makes for new storytelling that's didactic, prescriptive, propagandistic. The sin is that it introduces criteria to publishing other than that a story should be well and grippingly told and illustrated in an evocative, distinctive way. As for adult stories, let's not even go there. But let's just say that James Bond is only the start. That was Melanie McDonough. And finally, here's Sam McPhail. The world's top footballers now have a bigger following than the clubs they play for. Fans are beginning to support superstar players as they move around from club to club, rather than sticking with a team. And this threatens the very foundations of the sport. Streaming and social media are largely to blame. After Pele signed for the New York Cosmos in the mid-1970s, only 40,000 US football enthusiasts would flock to the old giant stadium. Earlier this month, when Lionel Messi joined Inter Miami in Florida, the club's co-owner David Beckham claimed that Messi's unveiling had 3.5 billion views online. Such a feat was unthinkable only a couple of years ago, and it means that players like Messi develop into megastars with their own gravitational pull. The growth of international broadcasting and the social media boom means that more and more fans can follow their heroes from breakfast to training, match day to holiday, and ultimately club to club. Old loyalties are being challenged as younger fans experience the game in a completely new way. It's unrealistic to expect these star-struck fans to choose a team over a player. Around 12 million football lovers in South Korea, nearly a quarter of the population, have picked Tottenham. They have no particular attachment to North London or the 140-year-old club that calls it home. But the country's biggest celebrity, Hyung Min Son, scores goals there. When Tottenham matches are broadcast in South Korea, there's an icon above the scorecard to show whether he's playing or not. One of Tottenham's players, Eric Dyer, was vilified on Korean social media after he was caught on camera arguing with Son. These fans are loyal to their compatriot, not the club. If Son's transferred, they'll follow him without a backward look at Tottenham. You can't blame the players. They're professionals and they'll move when they're sold, uprooting their families' lives. What's changed is that they take droves of the fans with them. In 2018, when Cristiano Ronaldo swapped Real Madrid for Juventus, the Italian club sold $60 million worth of shirts in 24 hours more than half the amount they sold in the entire previous season. Ronaldo's the most followed person on Instagram, and he recently overtook Kardashian to become the highest paid on the platform. Around 600 million people refresh their feeds every day to get an insight into his life, some 100 million more than his rival Messi, who's the second most followed. Ronaldo's branding is just as important as his footballing prowess. For his most recent transfer in January, Ronaldo went to the Saudi Arabian team Al Nasser, Few people have ever heard of the club, yet it still sold $50 million worth of kits in two days. Al Nasser put Ronaldo straight to work. Within two weeks, he fronted the Riyadh All-Star eleven against Messi's then-club, Paris Saint-Germain. Some critics questioned why an exhibition match was being played during an intense mid-season. Ronaldo and Messi's fans didn't seem to care. Millions watched the world's two best footballers go head-to-head. The fact that the fixture had nothing at stake didn't matter. Fans wanted to see the players, not the teams. But this comes at a cost. Football has had a century or more of club support built around local communities, with loyalty often passed down from father to son. If we lose this inherited loyalty, we lose the joy and despair that comes with following a team through thick and thin, through decades of failure as well as glory. Back in America, the Football League can't wait to put Messi in its all-star team. The execs are eyeing up a rematch between Messi and Riyad's Ronaldo. 
This time the fixture will have two made-up teams playing a match that doesn't matter. Many see it as the Harlem globetrotification of football. It's no wonder, really, that such players have been co-opted into the ranks of American stardom. At Messi's debut in Miami, US sporting royalty turned up to see him score a last-minute winner. American football's Tom Brady, tennis's Serena Williams and basketball's LeBron James cheered him on. LeBron, by the way, is his sport's most popular player by some margin. And in the National Basketball Association too, more than a quarter of fans are more loyal to the player than their club. Two in five would prefer their favourite star to be crowned most valued player than their team to win the championship. These attitudes have slowly defanged the leagues and weakened traditional rivalries in American sports. Devotion to a team, which for centuries has been a largely peaceful way of channelling our tendency towards tribalism, is disappearing. It's the young supporters who are most susceptible. The European Club Association found that of people who followed football for the player, the majority were aged between 13 and 35. It explains why in England, almost half of 16 to 24 year olds support at least two teams and a third follow three or more. And with so much money being used to build the Saudi league, the number of star players leaving Europe will only accelerate. Paris Saint-Germain have just accepted a £260 million bid from another Riyadh-based club, Al-Halal, for their A-striker Kylian Mbappe. His new club have reportedly offered him a world record salary of £605 million. However, the Saudis know they'll be buying a large chunk of Mbappe's hundreds of millions social media followers too. What will become of the clubs who lose their stars this way? It's hard not to feel that the game will lose some of its beauty when the clubs lose their appeal. That was Sam McPhail, and that's everything for this week. If these articles have whetted your appetite, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kencaran. Thanks for listening, and please do join us again next week. Mm-hmm.